Hey everyone, it's Elle. Before we start this week's episode, I've got a favor to ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description. This is our very first season of The Walk-In and we'd love to get feedback from you on what you're liking, what we could do better, and all that good stuff. It only takes a few minutes, so tell us what you think. And if you do, you'll get a 20% off coupon to the America's Test Kitchen online store. It's good for any cookbook, magazine, or digital download. So help us out and get 20% off. Now, on to the show. restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment to cry, to confide in a friend, or to collect your composure. It's the place where the pressure to appear in control falls away, where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff. From America's Test Kitchen, I am El Simone Scott, and this is The Walk-In. Hey Elle, it's your favorite non-binary goddess, V, giving you a call. I've got some hot tea on a new project I'm working on and I just cannot wait to share it with you. So meet me in the walk-in, we'll have a chat, we'll have a cry, we'll have a snack. I hope to talk to you soon. Today, an old friend is stepping into the walk-in with me, the great V Spear. V is amazing. They have been an advocate for the LGBTQIA community and food justice throughout their career. Advocacy work runs deep for V. Like so many people, they found their way to the food world through other channels. They started their career in theater. That led to jobs in catering and hospitality. Eventually, V landed at the James Beard Foundation, where up until recently, they worked as the director of impact and women's programs. The role was tailor-made for V. They worked to increase the number of women identifying leaders and owners across the culinary and hospitality fields. Their work has had a real measurable impact on so many folks in the industry, including me. But you can't help others until you've learned to advocate for yourself. Let's step into the walk-in. V, I'm so excited that you decided to step into the walk-in with me today. Do you know what the walk-in is all about? Well, the walk-in, you know, when I was working the line and in restaurants, the walk-in was the place where I would go to cry. So I'm hoping that this is a little <laughs> different than that, but, you know. It isn't. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you, but it, this is exactly that. It is Good. exactly that. I'm here to, to feel the realness. No, yeah, it's definitely made for the realness and also... It's really me wanting to get to know more about you. We are longtime friends. Yes. We met through James Beard Foundation. And I remember when there was a call out for someone to be leading the well program and own it. And I remember the job description really fit the need of the organization. And the things that I've seen you accomplish with JBF is so admirable and all the things that I've ever heard about you are forming true. <laughs> so I'm excited to have you in the walk-in and talk a little bit more about yourself. 
it's going to be special. You know, I really want the world to know the you that I know and then some, however much you want to share. So welcome to the walk-in. Thank you, Elle. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And of course, yes, I do spend an awful lot of time advocating on behalf of women and the LGBTQ community. And it's within that, that's very much a part of me and who I am as a person, but not as often am I talking about, you know, my journey personally. First in, first out. The first segment of the walk-in is called FIFO. Do you know what FIFO means? No. You know what it is. You're going to pinch yourself when I tell you. Okay. FIFO means first in, first out. Oh, course. Yes. Of course. Right. It's yes. the general rule of the walk-in. New food comes in. It goes to the back. Old food's rotated to the front. And that's what goes out into the world. I would love for you to just tell us a little bit about V, where you come from, who you are outside of the industry, and then just kind of lead us up into what you are doing now and who you are inside of the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So way back in the 80s, if we go to what was going on really socioeconomically at that time, we're talking about like the Reagan era, we're talking about the yuppie era, people really changing who they were. And I was born to essentially teenage parents. They were sweethearts their whole life. They're still happily married now. But it was an interesting time to be born and to be born to young parents and the idea that I grew up with them and I grew up in a time when the world was significantly changing what it meant to be successful. And I think that really colored the way that I saw success for myself and the different decisions I made in places I wanted to have a legacy. So even from a child, I found ways to put my mark on things or to change things that I felt were unfair. Starting with Catholic school, there's a uniform. And that uniform involves a skirt. And no matter how many times I was told, it's just like a kilt, I was not wearing that skirt. It wasn't going to happen, <laughs> Belle. You know, so I was able to wear pants. That was big. I was the first girl to ever play boys little league baseball when I was little. And I remember going to tryouts and my dad told me, just tuck your hair up under your hat. And I made the team and then they found out I was a girl and then they wanted to kick me off the team. And I basically lobbied the little league of Connecticut to allow me to play. And I was the first girl to play literally. That sounds like a 1980s movie. Oh, yes. So, you know, from there, I struggled with my sexuality from childhood and really gender identity from childhood. And this is not mm -hmm. something I've really talked about as early as that, because there was no language for it. You know, right. I was the first gay person in my high school. I wasn't, but I was the first one that I knew of, you know, mm -hmm. at all. There were words like tomboy or she's so quirky or, you know, all these kind of <laughs> yeah. things that now what I'm so grateful to the younger generations for is the language that they've given us to better, mm -hmm. you know, our generation was more like, I don't want a label and punk rock and you can't stop me. And now I'm kind of like labels are nice. And I, mm -hmm. I like the non-binary label and I like the gender queer label. And I think that that really helped me at 38 years old as of today, find myself more at this point in my life and find more comfort for myself where I was always more in the place of advocating for others or yeah. advocating for broad strokes changes under the banner of inclusivity, under the banner of Title IX when it came to sports. Mm -hmm. And now I can really put that effort in those terms into my own self-discovery, into my own psychology. 
Yeah. You know, I found that to be a very common denominator amongst those of us who do advocacy work is that early on, we do a lot of that work for people we inwardly identify with before we really know how to outwardly identify ourselves. We're always doing that work for others. I think it's almost like a transfer of power. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel powerless, so let me perhaps do this work that can empower others and in turn will make me feel empowered some sort of way. It's really strange, but I think that's really the um, precipice of um, all kinds of movements, right? Like the civil rights movements, Mm -hmm. civil rights movement was centered around people who didn't have rights. Even the people who were fighting for the rights didn't have the rights, but in some hope that they could work and get those rights for other people, it would in turn create a newer world, not just for them, but for us, obviously, because we're here with all the rights, right? Yeah. Yeah. Most of the time. Most of the time. Right. I mean, little do we know there's, you know, there's so many more rights not being honored or respected. Right. Yeah. Just the basic human rights. But did you just quietly, quaintly drop that today's your birthday? Uh, yes. Oh, <laughs> oh, I like how you did that, though. Happy yeah. birthday. Yes. You. And you oh, and you're on my podcast for your yes. birthday. It is a delight. Oh, my goodness. We're going to have to mark this one as super special. <laughs> special art, because you're here and that made it special. Most special, yeah. And there was a lot I was doing even back being a kid that mm-hmm. I I just struggled with in a way that I've not been able to hear a lot of stories of other folks who have done it this way. And I think there are probably you know, thousands of people out there who have done it in a way that I did it. I was so far in the closet that it was... I mean, it was unrecognizable to the people that I was close friends with. They knew that this was drag for me. I was a UCA all-star cheerleader. I was very popular. I always Mm. had a boyfriend. Now, I was also very Catholic, and I was never going to have sex before marriage because I was gay, but it was (laughs) definitely an easy out to be a good Christian girl and put that out there. But my drag, truly, when I think back on it, was such armor for me to have long blonde hair, to be a cheerleader, to be included in these circles where Mm -hmm. I could fully understand what I was up against and fully understand that by advocating for marginalized communities, whether that was the LGBTQ, I think they called it the allies program back in the day. And like, here I am Mm -hmm. like captain of my cheerleading squad in my small town, like being on the allies, you know, there was a lot that I was doing covertly that I hoped someone like me would benefit from, not realizing that I would be able to benefit from that myself as I got older. Yeah, that's very true. I was recently thumbing through Instagram and I came across a post that was basically a charge for those of us in the Black community who benefit from light skin privilege to Mm. use our privilege to advocate in every way for more melanated people in the community. And I had such an experience being a light-skinned person. I caught a lot of heat for it, you know, Mm. you get picked on. And I sat in that space and those feelings for a lot of my life. And I didn't, I never thought of it as something that would or could or should be used for advocacy. I mean, I'm very aware that light skin privilege exists, especially now that I'm an adult and I'm in the work world. But I never thought of it as a tool for 
helping others. You know, like I spent so much time feeling in defense of it. And I'm like, we light skinned, lighter skinned Black people and darker skinned Black people, we have that in common. Except one is interraced and one is outside of the race, you know, but it's still very different. And I think that advocacy work, that definitely leads to some type of social change, even within your group, whatever your group is, is really important because being able to present as a heterosexual person is not something that everyone has the privilege of doing, right? Yep. There are some people, you could put them in a dress and it mm-hmm. wouldn't make any difference, right? Because like just is, <laughs> well, that Well, that is TBD. Don't make me ask you for proof. That's Look, TBD. I pull off a dress like quite well. I've got beautiful legs. I'm here for it. But the thing that I find myself doing more is if I feel unsafe, I try to look more man, which is Mm. an interesting concept because I truly don't identify as a fully trans individual where I'm seeking that full transition. Sure. You know, you, you do these things that you try to chameleon into the environment you're in out of safety. And I think Mm -hmm. it's unfortunate that at this time and the level of success that both of us have achieved and the uh, level of, dare I say, likability both of us have achieved as marginalized communities, that folks don't realize how much of my day is still spent navigating the fears that were instilled in me my whole life and the homophobic things that happen to me to this day. When you were young and fighting for your right to wear pants in private school, how was your family feeling about that? Did they see it as something that was related to your identity in terms of sexuality? Or were they Mm -hmm. just seeing it as our daughter is very rebellious and she stands for what she stands for and we just support that? How was that received? So both my parents are, and at that time were, a little bit edgier, more rock and roll, right? Mm-hmm. My dad had a motorcycle. My mom's got a tattoo of a rose on her finger. It was the 80s. My parents were the hot, <laughs> cool leather jacket wearing. So in that way, they were different because I grew up in Connecticut. And so, you mm-hmm. know, you've got my mom rolling up with her slim fast in one hand, a cigarette in the other, brightly teased hair, blue eyeshadow, and a finger tattoo right. coming to pick me up from school. And you've got like Cynthia and the pearls over there. So I think the fact that they were young and they were different and they were still, you know, part of that counterculture in some sure. ways, obviously straight, but they saw it a little bit more as like, no one's going to dull your rainbow. Like no one's going to dim your star. When I came out, it was very difficult for my mother My dad was kind of like, whatever, dude. I mean, I was his little buddy forever. So he really didn't have a feeling about it necessarily, or he certainly didn't articulate one as strongly. But for my mom, we really had to go through this idea of like her mourning the life that she thought I would have. Mm. And we've talked about extensively how oftentimes for gay children, their first bully is their parent unintentionally, Mm. you know, because they see... Again, being born in the Reagan area, my mother's very best friend in the whole world died of AIDS in San Francisco, like very gay friendly family I came from. My Mm -hmm. mom was just like, oh my God, my child is going to struggle. You will never have the life that me and dad really want you to have and be successful. And those fears and that sort of ineducation led us to have about 10 years of really difficult conversation until she eventually was like, I'm the one who made it hard for you. And we've mm. since like, now my mother's like the president of the Gay Children's Alliance. My mom's like <laughs> the most rainbow waving like you know, yeah. person and, you know, accepting person in the whole world. And so it's gone a long way, but it's worth talking about this idea that you can be your child's first bully. Yeah. 
That's really interesting because I think that is probably the narrative for a lot of Mm -hmm. young queer people. I think it's even more crushing because you're like, how can you be so accepting of everyone else when actually I belong to you, the one who probably needs your acceptance the most? Mm -hmm. And I have to fight for it. Ten years, that's a pretty standard Fight time. I think for most people, it's a long time. It really was. And there's a lot of masking behavior that you learn as a queer child. And I'm just going to speak from the perspective of queerness, because I know that this applies to many marginalized communities in this particular experience. There's a lot of masking that you do as a child that you're taught to do, or you teach yourself to do to fit in, to mitigate attention, to like all kids do, reduce the risk Mm -hmm. of being bullied. And you don't realize until way later in life how traumatic that was for you mm-hmm. and how deeply rooted in your sense of self that remains. And so that's now going into you know my 38th year, that's the place that I'm finally able to have conversations with myself and say, how much of what I do is what we lovingly call the Vita Spear Show, which is where you see me and I'm like really confident and I'm here to talk about all these things and share my story. But it is a very curated story that I'm telling because I know Mm -hmm. that the people, you and I had that experience in Orlando when we were at the ACF conference. We've got thousands of chefs, right? And we're doing the women's conference. And I'm standing there and I straight up choked in the beginning of that presentation (laughs) because I was looking out upon a crowd that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. At James Beard, I was very protected. I was only working with women. I was only working with the queer community. It was, it was everybody's like saving grace angel coming to help them learn how to, you know, do business skills and build confidence. And then I'm standing in front of like tens of thousands of white jacket male chefs. And I literally came out and was like, hey, everybody, welcome to the ACF conference. Da, 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 da. We'll be right back in a minute. Just get settled because I saw myself starting to cry and panic, which is so unrealistic for me. And I had to like gather myself and thank God for leading authorities who was putting on the conference back there. But you know, those moments still happen when you look out on us. We have a tendency to create communities that make sense for ourselves, right? And we have the ability to create bubbles in which Mm -hmm. we're influential and safe still. And then you have moments like that, even to this day where I'm like, oh my God, I'm seven years old again. Well, I'm going to say your masking skills are fantabulous because I would have never thought at all for one moment that that moment was happening for you. But Mm -hmm. that's just the star that I see you in. (laughs) I see you in your truth and in your space. and, And that is admirable. But speaking of bubbles, Who were your bubble friends growing up when you were young? Like, tell me about high school and Mm -hmm. let's get to that age where it gets super complicated in terms of like becoming who you are. So I've had a best friend basically since I was born. His name is Tom Simonetti. He's an incredible human to this day. We're still incredibly close best friends. And I didn't have language around being gay that wasn't centered around being a gay male and I've mm. never really fit into the lesbian community. I'm not terribly athletic. And I, I was a cheerleader in, in the theater club. And so my experience with gayness was really centered around the gay male experience. And like mm. all my mom's friends that were gay men and would come over and like have tea and like talk. And I that was what I understood gay to be. So I didn't see a space for myself in it. So my bubble was really Tom Simonetti, my mom's gay guy friends, the people in the theater group my cheerleading squad. And so that was my bubble. That was my experience. Mm-hmm. And then I was doing theater and I would always get cast as a boy character because I have a tenor voice. And there mm-hmm. is nothing that will attract women's attention quite like playing a male Bible character as a woman. <laughs> okay. 
So it started then. <laughs> That's great. True. It's actually how I met my wife. But girls liked me first. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, whatever. And I really had to be taught what lesbian culture would be like or what it meant to be gay as a woman because I didn't have anything that made sense to me. Yeah, no frame of reference. Yeah. And so Tommy, he was ready to come out in high school. We were, it was the summer that we were both 16 years old. And I just got my license and we were in the car driving. He's like, I want to be gay, but I don't want to be gay by myself. I'm afraid. And I was like, I'll be gay with you. What do we got to do? And that is literally how it started. That is the sweetest love friend story I've ever heard. And then we were out. So that was summer. And I had switched high schools to go to this performing arts high school so that I could get in the college I wanted to go to. Because like all little girls who end up in restaurants, you have to start in theater. I mean, that's, that's just how it works. It was the prom and my mother's phone rang all night with this girl that I went to high school with who called her with harassing phone calls the entire night saying your daughter is, you know, every single possible slur for lesbian you can think of. And they just prank called her all night. And this is how my mother found out. And that did Mm. not go well. So I also really can't blame her for essentially her reaction because she was terrorized for an entire night. Yeah, sure. And that began me seeing that it wasn't always going to be easy and that there is a lot of hate in the world Mm -hmm. and sort of learning how to own it. Well, sounds like, as per usual, the bubble (laughs) uh, can be the safe space. It is, yeah. The Volrack Company has been making industrial cooking gear for 145 years, and they brought that long history to the table when they decided to launch Nuku, their line of cookware and bakeware for home chefs. Here's Jean Horvath, the Vice President of Custom and Specialty Products. With Nuku, it really gives them the confidence to explore their passion and focus on the joy that drives them to the kitchen. What we like to say is Nuku stands out by not standing in the way. Don't let subpar cookware stand in your way. Nuku Cookware and Bakeware is available on Wayfair and at select specialty retailers and cooking schools. Through the month of October, enjoy a special promo when you visit Nuku.com and enter promo code KITCHEN at checkout for 35% savings off their stockpots. That's N-U-C-U.com, promo code KITCHEN. For me, the decision to go to culinary school was life-changing. It put me on track to achieve dreams I didn't even know I had. Like, for example, hosting a podcast about the culinary industry. The Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts is in the business of dream-making. Their programs prepare students for a variety of roles in the food world in the most achievable way. They've got campuses in Boulder and Austin, plus online programs that include industry externships. Check out escoffier.edu to learn more. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. Well, okay, so you made it through high school. And you went to college. Did you continue studying theater when you were in college? I did. Okay. And so do you think that theater was part of the masking? Did that help that? Or was that just like your natural artistic lean in life? Was there any 
correlation between the two, you think? Yeah, I grew up in a very theatrical family. Both my grandmothers were like dancers, performers. One was a professional roller skater. We just were an entertaining, loud, crazy, fun family. So I was really surrounded by the arts, which was really very helpful. So when I went to school for theater, it's where I learned to truly perfect my drag because you're now a woman and the school is preparing you to be a woman in theater in the professional world, which is not going to be a place where they cast women and male characters. It's going to be me as an alto up against every other woman who is more authentically a woman and who has a higher range. And so I was cast quite a bit because the musical Rent had come out uh, pretty much right around that time. So there was an appetite for the beginning of this more avant-garde, more edgy, um, not traditional 1940s style, 42nd Street, you know, woman in theater. And so a lot of what I did was doing the drag, you know, like picking women's songs, wearing dresses, I had, growing my hair out. Like I was right back in the swing of how I was successful as a cheerleader. And it was something I was used to. So, and you want to get cast. And so you get rewarded when you act this way. And so professionally, when it came to class or it came to shows, I would do that. And then, um, you know, I, I was still a theater school and I was still one of the only gay people that went there that was a woman. And so I hung out with gay guys again. And I continued this being a part of gay male culture without truly having what someone might consider their own community. I do consider the gay male community my community because that's who I am and what I know. Um, but again, I was I was oftentimes the only one. Mm, the only one that you knew of. The only one that was a lesbian that I knew of. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. Okay, and so as you always say, and I, I love that quote, like every good girl in, in <laughs> restaurant, uh, you have to have a theater background. Basically, you come from the theater. Uh, when did that transition happen for you? When did you go like full food, you know? So I've always greatly admired my cousin, Kristen, who's also in theater. We grew up truly very close together. And then she moved to Manhattan. And then she started working for this restaurant company just as a survival job, like a lot of actors do called Be Our Guest Hospitality, which anyone who knows early 2000s, they were restaurant boot camp, right? So Be Our Guest, it's where all great things go to get greater. And um, mm-hmm. I had done some professional jobs. I had worked for like Bush Gardens. I had worked for Dolly Parton. I had done a bunch of singing gigs. So Wait a minute. Did you just say you worked for the DP? I did. The Dolly Parton? <laughs> yes. Whoa. Well, okay. What was that like? Just tell me really quickly. What was it like? Okay. So yeah, I shouldn't skip over Dolly because this was a really, (laughs) truly special thing. So it was winter of 2006 and I hated auditioning and I was auditioning for whatever it was. And Dolly Parton had open calls. And so I went in there and I was like, I am definitely in the wrong room. And, um, they were like, well, now that you've interrupted us, I guess you should sing. And I was like, okay, I don't have any music. So I sang Bobby McGee from the bottom of my soul because it was like the only thing I could think of. Mm-hmm. And they were like, okay, that was really good. Thank you so much. So this lovely woman, Claire, met me in the hallway and was like, how would you like to leave on Tuesday? And I was like, for what? And she's like, for Christmas in the Smokies with Dolly Parton. And I was like, there's no way that I have the skills to fake it through Christmas in the Smokies, like, and be straight through that. Like, it's not going to happen. <laughs> and uh, they were like, no, 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 it'll be okay. It'll be okay. So I left and I went down to Tennessee and started rehearsals for shows down there. We did a couple like local performances with her and singing backup. And so you're just doing a lot of work in that world. And in my contract, there was a morality clause that said, you can't drink, you can't 
swear, you have to uphold a certain public persona, which isn't a lot of contracts at that time, especially for Christian Mm -hmm. engagements. And so in there was a thing about, it didn't say it exactly, but it, it pretty well inferred not being gay outwardly. And I was like, okay. And I was faking the funk as best as I could. And then I got asked, um, you know, do you have a boyfriend? And I'm like, no. And they're like, do you have a girlfriend? And I'm like, no. Are you gay? And I'm like, I can't answer that. And so I ended up talking to Claire and Dolly herself about the morality clause. Mm-hmm. And they took it out. She was like, I absolutely in no way would ever have sanctioned somebody who loves somebody else as part of a contract. That's not who I am. My fans are gay. I am the biggest drag persona. Like that is not something that should be in there whatsoever at all. And it was just because it was a general contract, you know. And so they took it out. This is why I rocks with DP. This is why Dolly Parton is my girl. I rock with her. She is even more lovely in person than I could ever explain to you. She is truly an angel that walks this earth. And she's compassionate and understanding. And she's truly real. And Mm -hmm. it was just an interesting moment to have somebody of that persona see you and be like, absolutely not. Of course I wouldn't do that. And you're like, oh my God, people are actually as good as you hope that they are. So that was my Dolly experience. That's a great feeling. Yeah. So after I had achieved some level of success in singing and whatnot, I was trying to move back to Manhattan and my cousin Kristen was working as general manager and she needed a private event planner. And I had absolutely no skills in this arena. So obviously she strongly recommended me for this job. And <laughs> and that was how I got into my first big job in hospitality. I started off as an events assistant and I worked my way up to an account manager within the first year. And I was the youngest person on the team by almost 10 years. Wow. So what was good about that is Saturday Night Live used to do their after parties in the city And those events start at 1 a.m. And so our director of events was like, you're a kid. You up at 1 a.m.? I'm like, yes, I am. Celebrities? (laughs) Of course I am. (laughs) Right. So I started getting those contracts. Uh And I did it nine times, the SML after parties. And then I really started to get into understanding hospitality from the level of giving service that was truly in service and authentic and understanding that that was how I was going to continue to book more and more business. I love how your original passion found its way into what has become like your new passion. Mm -hmm. That really resonates with me because I was a social worker for many years Mm -hmm. and starting She Chef, in my opinion, was my extension of being a social worker, right? I was always good at providing resources, accumulating resources and teaching people in very informal ways. So without even thinking of it as a merger of my two loves, it really was that. And I think that Mm -hmm. when you can find some other things that make you money, of course, you know, generate revenue (laughs) and you can merge them together and to become a thing that you really love, that's really like a gift from the universe. You can't really ask for more than that. Okay, so I want to ask you about something that I think is so adorable and can kind of relate to. I know you grew up in Connecticut and, you know, I'm a Midwest girl, but there's something about the way you relate to food that really resonated with me. You said that your dad used to make monster meals. Yes. (laughs) I love this concept of monster meals because it it is literally what we call in sometimes in the South, sometimes in the Midwest, the kitchen sink meal. Mm Mm-hmm. We're going to eat what we ate yesterday, but we're going to add something in there that is about to go bad in a couple of days if we don't eat it. 
it's probably how the concept of having spaghetti and fried fish go together mm-hmm. in the Midwest, right? Like people are like, that doesn't go, but it totally does because something was going to go bad or something we need to add to this meal to stretch it out. Yeah. And you say your dad made monster meals. Tell me one of your favorite monster meal combinations that your dad has made. Yes. So when I've talked about food security in the past, I've talked about the fact that oftentimes, you know, you're eating what you get and we would be able Mm -hmm. to tell. And there were certain things that he would not compromise on, like Land O'Lakes white American cheese. We had to have that. You can't have the store brand and you had to have Heinz ketchup and you had to have Hellman's mayonnaise, but everything else was really up for grabs. Okay. Like Mm -hmm. we were going to eat what there was. And if you didn't like it, well then you you weren't going to eat that day. So yeah. Some of the things that my dad would throw together, he had been in his youth, a short order cook at Denny's. And I mm-hmm. think that this is something that really helped him develop what his culinary journey was going to be like as a dad. And so when I was little, I would not eat meatloaf. I thought it was gross and I hated it. So we would have uh-huh. meatloaf one night and then would be the game. Well, I'm not going to eat it. And then the next night he would put a piece of cheese on it and then I would eat it because it was cheeseburger night. So, I mean, there were little <laughs> sneaky things like that. I remember there being like a lot of salads that were like a noodle, a can of tuna fish, like whatever vegetables were kind of left in the crisper (laughs) or adding stuff to mac and cheese was his jam. He'd take a box of mac and cheese, but then he would not use the powder and he would use whatever odds and ends of cheese we had in the house. And then he Mm -hmm. would add peas to it or he would add like vegetables to it. And we would think it was like the greatest thing that ever happened in the world. We're like cut up hot dogs. And we were like, this is some gourmet Yes. And that goes on to this day in our house. We have something like half an Arby's chicken sandwich left over, some pasta left over, some bacon left over, some of this. So, you know, I like reclaim that chicken and now I chop it up and now we're going to put yes. it into the noodles and now we're going to use bacon topper. And oh, that's kind of like carbonara. So I want to put some peas in that. Like, And you yes. just end up using all of the odds and ends that are in your fridge to make these I meals. And then I got some local bologna, well, summer sausage, but it is bologna, mm-hmm. essentially from a local farmer up here. And I'm about to make a fried bologna sandwich with that on some white bread. Yes, fried bologna. You belong in my life. You know Spam? Yes. Spam's making a comeback. If you lived in Hawaii, I lived in Hawaii, Spam never left. Spam is very much part of everyday culture. You can get a Spam sandwich at McDonald's in Hawaii. I'm all about the Spam. I am about the Spam. I I love that. I love a little Vienna sausage. And I'm going to give a shout out now to Virginia Willis down in Atlanta now. She might be in South Carolina. Atlanta, yes. She and Cynthia Grabber are like about that Vienna sausage and I'm here for it. You've got a cook yes. named Matt who's a Mexican chef, Mexican-American chef, and he is cooking on the TikTok a storm and he's making those spam tacos. It is coming back. Oh. Those comfort foods are coming back. Vienna sausages and crackers were my after school snack. That was my latchkey snack. I will crack open a can any given day, any given day. Mine was that spray cheese on saltines. Was that easy yes. cheese on saltines? Easy cheese. Yeah. See, yes. we, we achieve a level of culinary elegance and then we're like, yo, easy cheese and spam. Get at me. <laughs> All day. Yeah. All day. <laughs> Awesome. Just because you're bougie doesn't mean you're fancy. That's all. <laughs> yeah. And just because you're bougie doesn't mean you don't like easy cheese and spam. Correct. Correct. That just means you got good taste. That's right. <laughs> the wall slide. This is a point in the podcast that I like to refer to as the wall slide moment. <laughs> when you kind of go in the walk-in, you have that little meltdown moment. And I'm not claiming your meltdown moment, but I'm going to say that for me, I had a mini meltdown when I got an email from you a few months ago. Mm -hmm. 
to say that you, due to COVID, have been furloughed. Yes. It broke my heart, honestly. And not that I didn't think that you would be okay, because from what I know of you, like, you're going to be okay no matter what. You are one of many, many talents and skills. But to think about the impact that you've had personally at JBF, it made me nervous. It made me sad. You know, in your spirit of advocacy, I'm like, who's going to be there for us? You know, but tell me how that was for you, that experience, even though I know what the word furlough (laughs) means, I've never heard anyone actually have to experience it as much as I have during COVID, right? So I'm not claiming your wall sign moment for you. If there's a moment in this whole story of your beautiful life that really brought you down, brought you to your knees or to have a moment, I'm happy to hear about that. But I would also like to hear about the experience of being furloughed. So if you want to share that, I would love to hear about it. Yeah, I definitely will. And Elle, we've been, like we said, we've been friends for a long time and I've not talked about my furlough outside of that email that I felt I needed to send to the people on my women's advisory board just so they would know sort of what was going on and and why they weren't hearing from me anymore or why the programs had stopped and whatnot. Uh, So furlough was definitely my wall moment. Mm -hmm. When COVID hit, I knew that my world was changing and the restaurant world was changing in ways that we would not be able to necessarily prepare for. But being a triage expert, as anyone in the restaurant industry is, I was like, okay, we just burnt an entire seating and uh, we got to make it all again. Okay. Well, what do you do? You know, like, what do you do? Yeah. So in my mind, I started thinking about, I had a lot of feelings up front. I will say my first feeling was women and children first to lifeboats. And what was I going to do to save these programs? What was I going to do to make sure that folks who were already making up most of the restaurant industry in service positions did not feel like ground or support that they had was going to be lost. So I started the web series. And if you watch the James Beard webinar series every single day, we're trying to just bring you lawyers, bring you politicians, bring you people Mm -hmm. in the industry, bring you financial folks, like bring you everything that I possibly could. I had a semi-false sense of security in thinking that because I was the only one of me, truly, because the women's programs were so funded, because I was so beloved by the sponsors, I was so beloved by the community. We had such great press. You know, it was really the change point for James Beard. They were really gaining a lot of authentic different eyes on the way that they practice. I really thought I was untouchable. I thought Mm -hmm. for sure I was not going anywhere. But if we're talking about the wall, it hit me hard because I had moved my family to New York City. I had created this huge public persona. I had told people to trust me. I had told people I would be there for them. I had built a women's advisory organization that touched on women from all different parts of the country and from the system. Mm -hmm. And I had said, we're doing this. And now I was going to have to say, we're not doing this. And I felt like I had ultimately failed in getting people's hopes up and then eventually having to tell them, like, it's not going to happen. When in essence, you didn't do any of those things. COVID (laughs) did, actually. Yeah. I took that responsibility so hard on my heart as who I was as a person. Mm -hmm. And over the last couple of months, the lesson I've had to learn is that me, the person, and me, the job I'm performing are different. And I think that's something that we all lose in the restaurant industry. We are our job. Absolutely. So learning that has been something that I've really been grateful for throughout this time. Mm -hmm. And 
I've had the opportunity to have an outside look at the James Beard Foundation and go back to the way that I saw them before in many ways, which was a platform, a place of thought leadership, a place, a community that is built through the awards and just the way that you create a community of people who share that common kind of experience. And while I'm sad to see that the women's programs are on hold, I do believe that the work we started out doing with the James Beard platform is still extremely relevant and still happening today. You just see it in different iterations. You see it in the Lee Initiative. You see it in Women in Hospitality. You see it in the Fab Conference. You see it in Cherry Bomb. A lot of the water I thought I was holding alone, I came to realize all these other women were shoulder to shoulder carrying that water with me. Absolutely. Well, you know, you always have home and space at She Chef. So if you ever want to bring some of that brilliance to us, we accept. (laughs) I absolutely would. (laughs) I actually have an announcement for I know I've been waiting. I'm so excited. Tell me, tell me, tell me. I have recently signed on with a new opportunity with an LA-based company called Everything Food. Essentially, Everything Food started off as a food tech software company that wanted to demystify nutrition. I came to know them through a chef, Monte Carlo, who uh, was on MasterChef. She had signed on with them. And the idea is to take the elitistness out of nutrition, to take the fat shaming, the lack of body positivity, the mystery, the macro, micro out of nutrition. Mm -hmm. And so what this platform does is it has the codes for hundreds of thousands of different SKU numbers you'd find in your local grocery store. And what you're getting there is a score that is based on most to least natural. And then you get further detail on nutritional density and it's gamified. So what's fun about it is you can build for yourself. You could be like, look, I want to have cake for breakfast, but how do I balance out my nutritional value throughout the rest of the day? I'm like, that's totally okay. It isn't a diet system. It's not meant to like lose weight, but it's meant to show you three ways that folks shop. Mm -hmm. One is I want the most premium ingredients and we can tell you where you can get that. Right. The other is I want the most premium ingredients for the best price. And then I want the most premium ingredients for my particular body type sensitivities, et cetera. And then it'll track for you the nutritional value of what you've been putting in your body. The other thing I like about it is it allows you to expand your palate in the way that only chefs can truly have been able to do for you in the past, which is like, you like apples? I bet you like jicama. Don't be boring, you know? I love that. That is genius. So I'm really excited to be joining this project, both because it pairs my passion for women in leadership and for Mm -hmm. food and nutritional justice. That's outstanding. A moment in the walk-in. This is one of my favorite segments of the podcast that we call A Moment in the Walk-In. And this is where one of our listeners writes in a letter for some advice from our guests. So this is someone actually who is apparently a fan of yours because they are calling out something very specific. And I also would love to know a little bit about it. So this uh, letter is from Tammy. And Tammy says, Hi, V. I've been working in the culinary industry for about six years, both front of the house, back of the house, and corporate. What I would like to know is how can I be more of an advocate and break that gastro ceiling that you refer to? 
Yeah. So uh, Tammy wants to know how she can further this cause. You might not be working with the WELL program and the women's initiatives at JBF, but you know how to do it. So Tammy is saying she needs your expert advice. So this is something that we've been talking about a lot at the FAB conference, actually, over the last couple of weeks. And it's this idea of wanting to be an advocate and wanting to be a change maker and how to do that authentically, how to do that within the limited budgets that exist for this type of work and how to do it where we're actually seeing the needle move and we're not just seeing a lot of like us talking within the same community. So first, my advice if you're starting any type of mission-driven business or initiative is to look at yourself. Oftentimes, the people we want to help are the people who are most like us, and they're most like us in the places that we least want to be seen, right? Mm -hmm. So I was drawn to food justice and to food security because there was a period in my life in which I was not food secure. And so that became something that I didn't want other people to feel, right? Where I'm very drawn to making space for folks in the LGBT community because I had to mask so much in it, and I want to make sure that they get to be their own rainbow. So I would say, look at yourself. And say, what are the things that I'm most authentically able to speak to, even if you haven't achieved the level of success in that particular place as you wish, but say, who am I and how can I actually relate to the cause that I want to help with them? What have I struggled with? What do I most align with and who can I be most helpful to? So what you need to do when you want to be a helper is understand who you want to help and why you want to help them. Mm -hmm. And that helps decolonize mission-driven work, which I think is the most important thing that we can do straight off. And then understand how you can be helpful. Are you going to be the person that puts the apple in someone's hand? Are you the field worker? Are you the suit who's really good at fundraising? Mm -hmm. Are you the software engineer who's really good at figuring out what people's capabilities are and developing an app that connects people to food? Are you the philanthropist? Are you the person who's giving the money? And then what pieces are you missing, right? And there's a lot of this work that really does go unnoticed or uncelebrated. And I think you need to find ways to celebrate yourself and your successes without external validation, oftentimes in mission-driven work. All right. Well, there it is, Tammy. First, you need to do some introspection. Then you need to do some inspection (laughs) and find your voice and find your place and find your crew, your tribe in the work that you are trying to center yourself in. And you have just been best advised by V. V, it's always so great to see you. And thank you so much for coming into the walk-in and just sharing all of your intimate life moments. It's so great to learn more about you. And I think the world is going to be a better place for having this information about your life. Thank you so much, Elle. I appreciate it so much. Just like any experience in the walk-in, we laughed, we cried, we had a snack, and now we're going to go face the line. You know it. You know it. V's new gig that they mentioned in our conversation is with Everything Food. Definitely check them out. They have helpful tools on nutritional literacy, grocery saving tips, and other cool stuff to get you eating healthy without making yourself crazy. That's everythingfood.com. But we also dropped a link in the show notes. And if you want even more V, visit their website at vspear.com or give them a follow on social. Their handle is mxvs13 on Instagram and TikTok. If you want a moment in the walk-in, send us your questions. You can email us at thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. 
You can send anything you need advice on, from the personal to the professional and everything in between. I'll only use your first name on the show for privacy. That's the walk-in at americastestkitchen.com. One more quick thing. If you like The Walk-In and you want more of these real, raw, unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. The Walk-In is created and hosted by my daughter, El Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Han Margolis. Our producers include Caitlin Kelleher, Caroline Rickard, and Sarah Joyner. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Ivana Strawin is our intern. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Blue Shield California, Nuku, Room and Board, Escoffier, Samuel Adams, Berkshire Bank, and Valley Fig Growers. The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen. If you love The Walk-In, then I have a treat for you. We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up-and-coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. Time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.